the author has been arguing that Jesus uh, is a priest in an in a order that is better than that of Aaron. And because that is true, he represents a better hope, he represents a better ministry, he is the mediator of a superior covenant. And now, as we're going to read this morning, uh, he represents a better sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. For since the law has uh, but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that we continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers have once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings uh, you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are different according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily uh, at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting uh, from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these there is no longer any offering for sin. So as we've said, the author is continuing in the same logical argument, and that is Christ. It is Christ. It's about Christ. It's all about Christ. One of the things that I hope you've taken note as we studied through this book is you've, you've heard us talk about this before, and we say this, there, there's a rule for interpreting Scripture, and, and the rule is this, and that is that Scripture interprets Scripture. I hope you'll notice that every, every point that the author of this book has been making, he, he backs it up with the Word of God. Over and over again. And the point he's making here really is this, is all of those sacrifices that God commanded in the Old Testament, 
They were all prefigurings of Christ, but they did not actually accomplish the act of saving people from their sins. One of the things they were designed to do was to show the people that they really needed a greater perfect sacrifice. I want to talk about the, the word impute for a few minutes. It's probably not a word that we use very often in our normal vocabulary. Uh, but it's a very important biblical word. It's a very important theological word. Because the Bible talks about imputation when it comes to the plan of salvation in three different ways. Number one the fact that Adam's sin was imputed to all who descended down from them. That's where it comes into our picture. But it also has to do with our sins being imputed to Christ as our Savior. And there's something else, and I think we don't talk about it enough, and that is this, and that is that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us through our faith in him. But you'll notice here, it's all about him doing. And it's about us trusting in what he has done. And trusting continually in what he is continuing to do. I mean, it makes logical sense that you could sacrifice all the animals that ever lived on the face of the planet and they would not atone for the sin of one single human being. For the reason for that is this, is because we of all creatures, not even angels, but human beings are the only creatures in scripture that are made in the likeness of, of God, made in God's image. That makes us very, very special to our creator. It makes absolute logical sense that, that, that sacrificing a goat or a cow or a pigeon in, play, in our place is just not significant. It's not sufficient enough to accomplish what's intended or what is needed. The only person who could atone for the sins of other people would have to be a person, a human being. That is the only logical equivalent sacrifice that would fulfill the laws of God. The sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed toward Christ. They were not a substitute for him. Obviously, these animal sacrifices had to be made over and over again. It was just not the, the sacrifices made on the Day of, uh, of Atonement, but at other times, too. It was an ongoing process in the temple. And we talked about this. I can imagine having to deal with what the priests had to deal with 
and all of these sacrifices. It would have been tiring. But those animal sacrifices served a number of purposes, and one of those was this. And the reason that why, you know, why were they done over and over again? It was to show something. And the something it was shown was that they, they were not sufficient. One was not enough. It took more and more and more and more. In essence, to remind the people that they were in desperate and constant need of a Savior. To enlighten people to the idea that the only sacrifice that was sufficient to atone for the sins of people would be the sacrifice of a perfect, absolutely perfect human being. Ten three says it very clearly. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And I would add this, it's rather ridiculous for anyone to actually believe that they do. Because a true sacrifice must in fact be something that is of equal or even greater value. And if it isn't, it really is not a sacrifice. Again, no cow, goat, sheep, or pigeon could atone for the sins of a single human being. It had to be the sacrifice of a perfect human being, a sinless human being. Nothing else would do. A legitimate sacrifice has to have equal, actually greater value than the one the sacrifice is made on behalf of. Otherwise, it's not a sacrifice. So why? Why every year did this go on and on and on? Can you imagine the thousands, maybe even millions of animals that have been sacrificed in the temple, and the tabernacle up to this point in history. What was needed was a human being. And not just any human being would do. It had to be a perfect human being. One who was absolutely and completely sinless. That should tell us a lot of things, and one of those is this, is just how serious God is about sin. Very often we make little of it, I think, uh, but we, we, we understand something, and that is this is something that God takes unbelievably seriously. It's important, it's essential. Psalm 40, verse 16 says this, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. Psalm 
Does that describe me? Does that describe you? As someone who continually rejoices and is glad in the Lord because we love the salvation that he has granted to us. Rejoicing. The proper response of someone who comes to know that he or she is saved through their faith, hope, trust, and the one and only sacrifice that can actually atone for sins is rejoicing. Expressing gladness continuously. You ever wonder what people think about you? You ever wonder how people might describe you to someone else? I mean, how many people in this room, and there are a few, I would say that, that the first thing that would come to mind is that they are a very joyful person? Joyous? Joyfulness is is one of the biggest descriptions of who they are and how they are. Sometimes people refer to our reformed reputation as the frozen chosen. Have you ever heard anyone say that? In other words, they they don't find us rejoicing a whole lot in our worship. They were more uh, theologically founded and that sort of thing. That's what we gravitate more toward. I would say that, 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 that people might describe our worship as reverence. That we have a high regard for the holiness of God and the reverence that he is due because of who he is. I would say that our tradition tends to be far more reverent than it does joyful. Joy is not only part of the picture, it's a very big part of the picture. And if we don't know what we're talking about, it's not something that we have experienced a whole lot ourselves, then I would say there's a good number of things we just flat don't understand very much. What I'm saying to you is this, is that joy has to be, it must be a central, very important aspect of our walk with Christ. And it's something that should be, ought to be, must be obvious to the people around us. Real joy, my friends, is not something you can hold inside. When you are really joyful, people see it. You can't hide it. It's impossible for you to hide it. 
what I would say to you is this, is that if joy is really part of the picture for us, then we just really don't get it. Psalm 47, verse 1, clap your hands, all you people, shout to the God with loud songs of joy. Is that a description of us? Make a joyful noise unto the Lord is a very common phrase in the Psalms over and over and over again. You've heard me say this before, and I'll say it again. It's a pretty grueling trip to make from here to Uganda and Africa. There are some people in here that have done it. You know, I've done it, Lori's done it, Walter's done it. it and Barbara made it. I, don't, I, I was shocked one time because I, I estimated they'd gone to Uganda maybe five or ten times or something like that. It was way more than that. They went out every year for years. But one of the finest memories I have of Uganda was the very first worship service that we went to. It was in a schoolhouse in a, in a classroom. And it was a pretty big classroom. But it was so full of people, it wouldn't hold everybody. There were people <laughs> on the outside. But let me tell you, the joy that flowed forth from our Ugandan brothers and sisters in that worship service was unbelievable. I have never in my lifetime come close to experience such a joyful worship service in my whole life as a Christian. I would tell you this, that if you went to Uganda for no other reason to worship with our brothers and sisters, what? The cost and the trouble and all that of doing it would be well worth it. Joy flows forth in great measure. It's just. I think most of us very often are more concerned about the people around us and what they're going to think if we actually get too joyful. We're more concerned about what other people see and what other people think than we are about the God who's above us looking down upon us. And that's not a good place to be. Of Jesus, it said, I have come to do thy will in chapter 10, verses 7 and 9. Two times. It's the son speaking. Speaking in, ra- in regard to the covenant of redemption. Something in which each one of the three persons of the Trinity do their part. God the Father elects and he sends the son. God the Son comes, 
lives, dies, resurrected, and is ascended back into heaven, all the time perfectly obeying the will of the Father in absolute minute detail, and God the Holy Spirit coming, regenerating, indwelling, enlightening, and guiding the same spirit that dwells within us. And we know this, that the Son came to do the will of the Father and the Holy Spirit. But we know that right now, the Holy Spirit has come to do the will of God the Father and God the Son. Isn't it nice that we don't have to bring sacrifices to church on Sunday morning? We don't. Because we are fully and completely sanctified by the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit already. When theologians talk about sanctification, they talk about it in two different lights. They talk about what is called uh, positional sanctification versus progressive sanctification. In other words, positional has to do with we're sanctified positionally before God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. But there's also this thing called progressive sanctification, which basically means growing in your faith, growing in Christ. And blossoming as you do that. Most of you don't know the name of John Gerstner. I know a few of you probably do. If you know anything about him, he was, he was a great theologian. He's passed away now. Great theologian, very well known in our denomination you know, early on. I had the privilege of having him. He was R.C. Sproul's mentor. If you know anything about R.C. Sproul... John Gerstner is the one who was Sproul's primary and principal mentor and teacher. Now, I took a class, theology, first theology class I took in seminary, I took with John Gerstner. And let me tell you, it was one of the scariest things I've done in my whole lifetime. Because he teaches in a dialogue kind of a way. He throws out a question at you. He picks people and he throws a question at you and and, 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 and he's going to basically rail on you until he gets the answer he's looking for. And 99% of the time, he doesn't ever get that answer, so he moves on to someone else. So after the first day of class, we left there, and we're talking, all the students are talking with each other. Gosh, if this is what the week's good, because it was an accelerated, accelerated thing for one week. If this is what seminaries are going to be like, I'm not going to make it. <laughs> Seriously. Now, fortunately, after a few days, his personality began, began to come through, and he really had a light side to him and very, very gracious person and this, that, and the other. But, but, it, but it really, he was serving a purpose for the seminary, and that was, in a sense, his, he saw it as his responsibility to make sure that the people were there were people who were supposed to be there. Not just anybody and everybody that just thought, like, getting a seminary degree would be a good idea or, you know, something along those lines but to weed out the people who are really being called to do it as opposed to some of those who possibly weren't. 
So what did I do after the first couple of days? I started thinking, you know, where's the, where's the place I can sit in this room where I'm going to be least likely called on? And so what I'm thinking is this, is normally the first person would be somebody in the front row. So what I decided to do was to sit front row directly to his right thinking this is probably where most people would pit first, so it's probably with hymns is going to be the last. But I was wrong. <laughs> he looked at me and he said, Mr. Staten, are you sanctified? And I knew what the proper answer was. And I said, yes. And he began to rail on me. How arrogant can you be? And I was ready to give up the ghost very soon. And finally, after, I don't it seemed like an eternity that he was doing this, and I was embarrassed as I could be, all the other students listening and watching what's going on here, and this, that, and the other, and, and whatever. And finally, he stopped short, and he said, you know what? Hallelujah, Mr. State knows he's sanctified. I'm going, oh, gosh. But there's a sense in which we are already sanctified where we are. And again, what this means is we are set apart as holy unto God. He no longer sees us as the sinners that we are. We see sees us as his holy children because of what Christ has done for us. There's also a sense, so that's what's called positional sanctification. But there's always also something theologically we call progressive sanctification. This is basically as you enter into the Christian life and you live, you grow as a Christian. Your life becomes more holy. Your life becomes more godly dedicated. Christ becomes more and more the central thing of everything. And we know that one of these days, even that will be accomplished at the second coming of Christ. What the author is doing here is he's bringing to the conclusion an argument he started several chapters back, all the way back in 8. Chapter 8, verse 8, where he quoted Jeremiah 31, 31. I hope you've noticed this. Here. Once in Hebrews, just about everything that the author says about anything, he backs up with Scripture. It's not his thinking. It's not what he thinks. It's what the Bible says over and over and over again. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the old covenant which I made with their fathers, but this is a new covenant I will make. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. These prophecies being fulfilled in Christ.
their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. That is a most amazing statement. The Shorter Catechism, the question, what is sin? This is what it says. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. You jump into the larger catechism, which is designed for, for, for grown-ups, not kids. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. That's a mouthful. Webster's Dictionary. A sin is an offense especially against God. The secular dictionary. Now very often theologians separate sins into two different categories. One's called sins of omission and the other is called sins of commission. Omission is not doing something that God has told us to do. Commission is doing something God has told us not to do. We need to be very careful not to make Christianity just into just another religion of rules and regulations. Just remember what, how Jesus summarized things in the first and second greatest commandments. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength and your neighbor as yourself. I don't know about you, but uh, I'm of an age where my memory is beginning to fail me. If you've been around me much in more recent months, it's probably pretty obvious to you. People are constantly coming up to me to ask me about something, and I'm thinking, I'm not even sure I know what they're talking about. But just remember this. God always hears, God always sees, God always knows. Even the most intimate details that concern every one of his children. Sometimes the Bible talks about God remembering. Well, we understand this. God really doesn't technically remember in the same sense that we do because he knows everything all the time. He doesn't ever have to be reminded of anything, ever. God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. Which means this, he cannot literally remember anything because he knows everything all the time, unceasingly. That he will, in essence, has blotted out our sins to the point 
that from his perspective, they never existed. It is not that he has simply wiped our slate clean, which I would imagine is what most people think. It is more like he has taken our slate and thrown it entirely away. As if it never existed. Before Christ, when he looked upon you, he saw nothing but sin. But with Christ and the Spirit indwelling us, when he looks upon us, he sees no sin at all. He remembers our sins no more. That ought to have an amazingly powerful, freeing, slash liberating effect upon us. But I do want to warn us about something, and that is considering all this stuff does not ever give us a license to sin and think it's okay. But we should see and find in ourselves this ever-growing passion, desire to not sin. To really honestly put it to death. Unfortunately, from a human perspective, sin remains a very real part of our picture. Sometimes I don't think we really, let me, let's be honest, we cannot really wrap our hand, head around the fulfillment of all these things that God has promised us. You ever think about what heaven's going to be like? Some people might think, well, it sounds like it's going to be kind of boring to me. Let me tell you. Either we're going to wind up in heaven, our spirit's going to wind up in heaven when we die, or Christ is going to come back and we're going to be united with him here on earth. But that moment... Can you imagine what it's going to be like? And this is something we're all going to experience. It's going to be the moment when every single doubt or concern or misunderstanding or whatever disappears. That time is coming. The truth is, we really ought to consider these things very seriously because there should be an ever-growing hatred of sin in us. Not a conjoling of it. Or just shrugging on our shoulders and just say, well, it's just part of the picture, I just got to learn to live with it. That is not the approach, that is not the attitude that we are encouraged we, to do. We are to be involved, engaged in the process of killing it, dying of it. We can't do it on our own. The Holy Spirit actually has to do it. 
that we can learn how to lean upon the Holy Spirit a lot more, right? Not about you, but I'm sick and tired of dealing with sin. And I'm not just talking about mine, I'm talking about yours too. I've had it up to here. Sometimes I feel like I'm drowning in it. But that is the world that we now find ourselves living in. But what we need to spend a lot more time doing is looking forward. Because we know that there's a time coming when this nasty, ugly sin will be gone completely, absolutely, eternally. In me. And in you. And in everyone who knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. No more sin. No more ugliness. No more dirtiness. No more filth. No more this. No more that. Just everything absolutely, wonderfully, unbelievably The time will come, my friends, when sin will no longer be a part of your picture at all. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, what a day that will be. And when we consider that, the natural thing that ought to result from it is Joy. Joy. Now we're going to sing a closing hymn this morning. And I expect to hear some joy in this room. And it's going to start with me. So you better watch out.